In his model prayer, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, Jesus told us to pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We should pray this every day. The Christian's goal is to live under God's rule in our hearts and live it out in this fallen world. But the ultimate answer to Jesus' prayer won't occur until the day Jesus returns to this earth and literally establishes a physical, tangible, enforceable kingdom on this planet. Revelation chapter 20 tells us that when Jesus comes, He will rule over this earth for a thousand years. We call this future period on planet earth the millennium or the kingdom age. And that's the subject of these last nine chapters of Ezekiel. Chapters 40 through 43, as we talked about last week, describe a new temple, the temple that's going to be in operation during the millennium. Chapters 44 to 46 talk about a new ministry within that temple. And then the last two chapters, 47 and 48, talk about new boundaries and new topography in the Holy Land of Israel. Chapter 44 begins, Then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary, which faces toward the east, but it was shut. Now recall, Ezekiel is a prophet living in Babylon, but he has been whisked off in a vision to the future and to Jerusalem. In chapters 40 to 43, he's given a tour of the millennial temple, and he has a guide. In fact, whenever we're whisked off by Delta Airlines to the land of Israel and we visit Jerusalem, we too have a guide. Over the years, it's been Yuval, it's one of my favorites, or Amir, or Shlomo, or Amnon. We've had a lot of them, and they've all been good. But Ezekiel is on a tour with the tour guide of all tour guides. In chapter 40, verse 3, he's identified as a man who has the appearance of bronze. Johnny Cash was the man in black. Ezekiel's tour guide is the man in bronze. And in verse 2, when the God speaks to the prophet, Ezekiel says, The Lord, that is Yahweh, said to me. Ezekiel identifies his God, the Lord, as Yahweh. That's what it reads in the Hebrew language. I believe Ezekiel's tour guide was none other than a pre-incarnate appearance of God's Son, Jesus Christ Himself. And Ezekiel's guide has been showing him this millennial temple. I believe this is the temple in which Jesus will reign and rule when He returns. Earlier in the book, Ezekiel mourned the evacuation of God's glory from the former temple, the temple of Solomon. Now he sees the glory return to this future temple. And it returns the same way it left, through this east gate. But here Ezekiel's tour guide takes him back to the eastern gate and he points out how it's been shut. And you too have seen what Ezekiel saw. For today, on the eastern wall of the Temple Mount in the old city of Jerusalem, there is a double-arched gate that is blocked up or shut up with stone. The Jews call it the Golden Gate. The Arabs call it Bab Eddarari, I suppose, or the Eternal Gate. 
The position of the gate dates back to the 7th century A.D. It was actually built on top of the east gate through which Jesus made his triumphant entry into the city. This gate has a long history. In 810 A.D., the east gate was officially closed by the Muslims. It was blocked up by stones. The Muslim officials had heard that the Jewish Messiah would return and enter through the city, into the city, through this gate. They'd probably read Ezekiel, the verses we're about to read. The gate was reopened during the Crusader period, 1102 to 1187 A.D. During that time, the Christians would hold Palm Sunday processions where priests and worshipers would stream down the Mount of Olives, all waving their palm branches, entering into the city through this famous gate. In the 1500s, the Ottoman Turks took control of Jerusalem. And in 1541, a sultan, his name was Suleiman the Magnificent, he constructed what are today the current walls of Jerusalem's old city. In 1543, the Turkish governor heard that the Jews believed that Messiah would return and enter the city through this eastern gate. And so again, in fear of the final judgment and the end of the world, This governor had the gate sealed up with stones once more. In fact, he even began to bury the dead in front of the gate, believing that a faithful Jew would never walk through a Muslim graveyard, and thus he had protected them from the coming of the Messiah, as the Muslim belief went. And this gate has been shut ever since. In 1893, Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany planned a ceremonial entrance into the city of Jerusalem through this eastern gate, At the last minute, he altered his plans, and the Kaiser entered on the western side of Jerusalem. Before the Six-Day War of 1967, the Jordanians had plans to open the gate. But before they were able to do so, they lost control of the city of Jerusalem, and the east gate remains sealed to this very day, just as Ezekiel saw. Verse 2 tells us, And the Lord said to me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter by it, because the Lord God of Israel has entered by it. Therefore, it shall be shut. Jesus entered the temple courts through this east gate. Now it's shut. But Jesus will enter and exit this gate again, for verse 3 tells us, As for the prince, because he is the prince, he may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord, He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gateway and go out the same way. Because the Shekinah glory had entered the temple through this east gate, because Jesus had entered the temple through the same gate, it was shut by God. But when this prince comes, he will go in and out by this gate. He'll sit in this east gate and eat bread. It will be his personal entrance in and out of Jerusalem. Apparently, when Jesus returns, he'll come up from battle and he'll enter Jerusalem as in the past through the Golden Gate. It will become his personal entrance. Today, armed Israeli soldiers stand guard on top of the East Gate. You can see their guard stations in the picture. Their presence testifies to the tension that surrounds this whole Temple Mount. But one day, Jesus, the Prince of Peace, will sit within this gate and eat his bread, epitomizing the peace and prosperity that he brings. 
This prince, Ezekiel mentions, takes a prominent role in the millennium, as we'll see in the chapters tonight. But here's the question. Is this prince actually Jesus, or is it someone else? And this is a debated argument. There are good lines of reasoning on both sides. On the one hand, Jesus is referred to in the Scriptures as the prince. In Isaiah 9, verse 25, he's the prince of peace. In Daniel chapter 9, verse 25, he is Messiah, the prince. In Daniel 8, verse 25, he is prince of princes. We should also point out that the Jewish rabbis interpreted this prince to be the Messiah. On the other hand, there are problems with this. In chapter 45, verse 22, the prince offers a sin offering. Why would Jesus offer a sin offering? In chapter 46, verse 16, the prince has sons. Jesus had no natural born sons. In chapter 46, verse 2, this prince worships in the temple with the people. If this is Jesus, he should be worshipped rather than just be one of the worshippers. Well, here's a response to these three objections. First, remember that we mentioned the sacrifices in the millennial temple will be memorials. Jesus has paid the work for us. He's paid the price in full. He's done all that needed to be done for us to be forgiven. Nothing can be added to the work of Christ on the cross. Thus, these sacrifices are merely symbolic, not substitutionary. That being the case, it would be fitting then for Jesus to offer sacrifices and in doing so, memorialize His work on the cross. Second, in the millennium, the new covenant has come to Israel, which means that Jesus will have many sons, not natural heirs, but spiritual sons, for the Jews will have been born again. And then third, while on earth, even though Jesus was God, Jesus set an example for us among His disciples by praying to and worshiping the Father. And this in no way stopped Him from receiving worship when it was directed toward Him. So not just being a worshiper, He could also be worshiped as well. Admittedly, the identity of this prince here in Ezekiel 44 is a thorny, debatable subject. If it's not Jesus, it could be King David, or perhaps an unnamed ruler who will be given special authority in the millennial kingdom. I personally believe this prince is the Messiah, but I could be wrong. Surprise, surprise. Good teachers disagree with me. Verse 4 tells us, Also, he brought me by way of the north gate to the front of the temple. So I looked, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord, and I fell on my face. Now, Ezekiel's a priest. He has a concern for the temple. And he had witnessed the departure of the Lord from his own temple. Now he sees the glory return and fill the house of the Lord. He's humbled. He's excited. He's happy that the Lord's glory has returned to his temple. And the Lord said to me, Son of man, mark well. See with your eyes and hear with your ears. All that I say to you concerning all the ordinances of the house of the Lord and all its laws, mark well who may enter the house and all who go out from the sanctuary. Remember in chapter 40, Ezekiel was told to declare everything he saw. He was told to note in detailed dimensions and configurations what he saw within the temple. Now he's told to note well the protocols for the worship and participation in the temple. I think we should just notice that apparently details matter to God. 
Well, God tells him in verse 6, Now say to the rebellious, to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, O house of Israel, let us have no more of all your abominations. When you brought in foreigners, uncircumcised in heart and uncircumcised in flesh, to be in my sanctuary to defile it, my house. And when you offered my food, the fat and the blood, then they broke my covenant because of all your abominations. And you have not kept charge of my holy things, but you have set others, in, others to keep charge of my sanctuary for you. Thus says the Lord God, No foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner who is among the children of Israel. In the days of Judah's monarchy, her kings would marry foreign wives to sort of seal peace treaties with the surrounding nations. But those foreign wives would bring with them idols and idolatrous priests into the city of Jerusalem. Remember, not only did the northern kingdom, not only did Ahab marry Jezebel, but he also brought, she brought with her all of the priests of Baal with her. This happened in the southern kingdom as well. And this foreign influence defiled God's temple. Rather than maintain purity in their worship, they opted for inclusion and syncretism. This angered God. This broke his heart. Eventually, it brought judgment upon Jerusalem. These verses also might be a reaction to the similar crime that's committed yet future in the temple that precedes the millennial temple, the temple of the tribulation. The Antichrist will commit an abomination that we're told causes desolation. He'll desecrate God's altar in some way. Perhaps the Antichrist will set himself up as God. Perhaps the Antichrist is the foreigner here, the uncircumcised of heart that is supposed to be forbidden from this temple. And then he says, And the Levites who went far from me when Israel went astray, who strayed away from me after their idols, they shall bear their iniquity. Now remember, the Levites... This was the tribe of Israel devoted to the worship of God. All the priests were Levites. Their ministry revolved around the temple service. And yet the Levites had played a diabolical role in the backsliding of Israel. When Israel followed after idols, God said that they went far from me. Ironically, of all the tribes, Levi was supposed to be closest to God, yet instead they were the ones who went farthest from him. And here's their punishment. Yet they shall be ministers in my sanctuary as gatekeepers of the house and ministers of the house. They shall slay the burnt offering and the sacrifice for the people, and they shall stand before them to minister to them. Because they ministered to me before their idols and caused the house of Israel to fall into iniquity. Therefore I have raised my hand in an oath against them, says the Lord God, that they shall bear their iniquity, and they shall not come near me to minister to me as priest, nor come near any of my holy things, nor into the most holy place. But they shall bear their shame and their abominations which they have committed. Nevertheless, I will make them keep charge of the temple for all its work and for all that has to be done in it. Now this is ironic. They're going to be allowed to continue to serve in this millennial temple, but not before the Lord, not in the holy place. He says, they shall not come near me to minister to me. 
Rather, they shall stand before the people to minister to them. Now, as a pastor, I don't usually think of ministry to people as a punishment. As a matter of fact, I pray regularly for God to bring more people. Ministry to people is what we're all about. Every pastor I know loves to be out in front teaching people. But on the other hand, it's the private ministry, not to people, but to the Lord, that requires discipline on our part. So many of us often struggle to stay on our knees. Some pastors love their time in the public pulpit more than they do their time in private prayer. Yet notice what's happening here. When God wants to punish the Levites, He loads them down with ministry to the people. And He prohibits them from the uplifting and refreshing experiences of ministering to Himself, to the Lord. Trust me, no pastor ever burned out spending too much time in prayer and worship. It's all the interaction that goes on. It's the counseling and this and that and this and that. That's what causes us to to wear a little thin and to burn a little loud and get a little down. Times with the Lord is what recharges our batteries. It's ironic that what most pastors see as a privilege, God sees as a punishment. And what we often treat as a burden, God knows proves to be our biggest blessing. And so the Levites are punished. Rather than minister to the Lord, they're the ones that minister to the people. And it's to one family of the Levites, the sons of Zadok, that God bestows the biggest blessing of ministry to him. Verse 15. But the priests, the Levites, the sons of Zadok, who kept charge of my sanctuary when the children of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Lord God. They shall enter my sanctuary And they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. It was the priest who had stayed faithful when everyone else ran after the idols that now get the joy of ministering directly to God throughout this thousand years, this millennial kingdom. Now verse 17 tells us, And it shall be whenever they enter the gates of the inner court that they shall put on linen garments, No wool shall come upon them while they minister within the gates of the inner court or within the house. They shall have linen turbans on their heads and linen trousers on their bodies. They shall not clothe themselves with anything that causes sweat. This is intriguing. The priests need to wear lightweight linen, not a woolen robe or anything that might cause undue perspiration. And why? (laughs) God wants His people to know, He wants to show His people, that His work is always no sweat. God's work done God's way will always be no sweat. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 30? My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That doesn't mean that we aren't required to exert some energy and be faithful in serving the Lord But ultimately, the work is up to, it's not up to us, it's up to Him. It's not our responsibility, it's God's responsibility. That means that whenever we minister for the Lord, we should do so trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. 
not in our own sweat and elbow grease. Remember Romans chapter 14, verse 23, whatever is not from faith is sin. When we work for God as if it's up to us, as if it all depends on our blood, sweat, and tears, we've missed the boat. What we need is a touch from God. What our church needs is not more perspiration, but inspiration. Well, verse 19 tells us, When they go out to the outer court, to the outer court to the people, they shall take off their garments in which they have ministered, leave them in the holy chambers and put on other garments. And in their holy garments they shall not sanctify the people. They shall neither shave their heads nor let their hair grow long, but they shall keep their hair well trimmed. That's why I went yesterday and I got me a haircut just because I knew I was reading this passage and I needed to be well trimmed. The priest, in other words, should avoid looking odd as if he's taken some vow by either shaving or not shaving. In other words, when he ministers, his emphasis should be on the Lord, not on himself. It shouldn't be, look at me, I've shaved or I've not shaved. Ministry's not about us, it's about Jesus. And notice verse 21. No priest shall drink wine when he enters the inner court. No priest should drink wine when he enters the inner court. When someone comes before the Lord to minister to the Lord, there shouldn't be wine or alcohol on his breath. Throughout the scriptures, when leadership and alcohol are spoken of in the same passage, it is always about restricting the use of alcohol. God forbid that a priest, or a pastor for that matter, would be charged with MUI, ministering under the influence. And yet I hear today of Christians gathering for brews and Bible study. It's become quite popular, in fact, believers coming together to study the Bible over a few beers. To me, that's outrageous. That violates the wisdom we learn here in Ezekiel. Hey, when the world is new in the millennial kingdom and Jesus reigns, this won't be permitted. No priest will go into the presence of God after having drinking wine with wine on his breath. If it's not a good idea then... How could it be a good idea now? When a pastor comes into the inner court, into the presence of God, to study the Bible or to pray, he needs to be sharp. He needs to have all of his faculties available to him. There should be no place for alcohol in a pastor's life or ministry. As Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3, the pastor or elder should be not given to wine. We're also told in verse 22, They shall not take as wife a widow or a divorced woman, but take virgins of the descendants of the house of Israel or widows of priests. And this remains good advice for a pastor today. I'll explain why. Kathy and I got married in August of 1980. We were a darling couple. We started Calvary Chapel the very next month. All my wife has known her whole married life for nearly 36 years now is the pastorate. It's being the wife to a pastor. 
And she would tell you, living with a pastor is extremely challenging. No two days are exactly alike. A pastor is always on call. We live our lives in a fishbowl. It's an exciting life, but it's a demanding life. And God knew that a lady accustomed to a husband who works a normal job with set hours might find it tough adjusting to the demands and the scrutiny of ministry. That's why here a priest can marry a woman who's never been married. She didn't know the difference. Or he can marry the widow of a priest, someone who's already been through it. But it would be unfair to both partners if the priest married a woman who was used to a normal marriage and didn't know what she was getting into marrying a man in the ministry. He continues with instructions for the priest, verse 23. And they shall teach my people the difference between the holy and the unholy and cause them to discern between the unclean and the clean. And if ever we needed this kind of teaching, we need it today. How important this is for us all. To learn what pleases God and what doesn't please Him. To learn what's holy or set apart for Him and what's unholy. You know, our generation has lost touch with what's holy and what's unholy. The life of holiness seems to be a, an enigma to many people. What's clean and what's unclean has gotten lost in varying shades of gray. He goes on, in controversy they shall stand as judges and judge it according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes and all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. They shall not defile themselves by coming near a dead person, only for father or mother, for daughter or son or daughter, for brother or unmarried sister, may they defile themselves. After he is cleansed, they shall count seven days for him. And on the day that he goes to the sanctuary to minister in the sanctuary, he must offer his sin offering in the inner court, says the Lord God. Again, these are some restrictions for the priest. Apparently, death will be rare in the kingdom age, but it will exist. There will be people who die. And this will be problematic for the priest. Here we're told that the priest should steer clear of associations with death. Now, it shall be in regard to their inheritance that I am their inheritance, speaking of the priests. You shall give them no possession in Israel, for I am their possession. They shall eat the grain offering, the sin offering, and the trespass offering. Every dedicated thing in Israel shall be theirs. The best of all first fruits of any kind and every sacrifice of any kind from all your sacrifices shall be the priests. Also you shall give to the priests the first of your ground meal to cause a blessing to rest on your house the priest shall not eat anything, bird or beast, that died naturally or was torn by wild beasts. seems that the millennial priest will be under some of the same standards as were the priests in the Old Testament. Now, to conserve a little time here like we did last week, we're going to do some summarizing. In the first five verses of Ezekiel 45, he describes what will be a holy district in the kingdom age, sort of a holy hangout. It's the land that is allotted to the priests and to those who minister in this future temple. And it's a track of land. It's an actual track of land. It's 25,000 cubits by 10,000 cubits. And if a Babylonian cubit is 21 inches, 
this land is 8.3 miles by 3.3 miles, or about 27 square miles. It's a huge piece of property. He also says that within this area, there's going to be a plot about one square mile, that is 500 rods by 500 rods, and remember a rod equaled six cubits, or 20, or which is 10 and a half feet. This plot was for the temple courts. This is the same area that was measured out in chapter 42. That's the first five verses in chapter 45. Verses 6 through 10 apportion land to the city of Jerusalem. It's also in this holy district. And to the prince and his princes. They too will live in this designated area. Here's a layout for you on the screen. Kind of shows you what it'll look like. There's a holy district which consists of the city, some common land, the priest portion, the Levites portion, and the temple mount. Verse 8 tells us why the priest is allocated a special parcel. He says, my princes shall no more oppress my people. In other words, God was tired of the royal family using eminent domain to confiscate people's property. And so here he gives them their own plot. He reserves the rest for the tribes. In the millennium, Jesus will insist on honest business interactions. Verse 10 tells us, You shall have honest scales, an honest ephoth, and an honest bath. I don't know what a dishonest bath is, but I get an honest bath lots of times. It's just a joke. The ephoth and the bath were actually... Uh, units of measurement. In verse 9 through 12, Ezekiel describes how there will be fixed standards of measurement. Wherever you go in the millennial kingdom, an ephoth and a bath and a homer and a shekel and a gara and a mina all have equal value. You don't have to worry about a sliding scale or things being different in different places. In essence, there will be equitable business practices on the earth. No one will cheat or defraud their neighbor. Won't that be glorious? In verses 13 to 17, the prophet describes how sacrifices will be brought to the prince. And then he'll offer them to God. Notice he's both king and priest. And there's only one person in the Bible who was both. That's King Jesus. In verses 18 to 25, we learn how that two feasts will be celebrated in the kingdom age. Passover in the spring of the year and the Feast of Tabernacles in the fall. As a matter of fact, in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16, we're told that during this time, and I quote, Everyone who is left of all the nations which came up against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And it shall be that whichever of the families of the earth do not come up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, on them will be no rain. Apparently, during this kingdom age, this Feast of Tabernacles is a big deal. God wants everyone to come up to Jerusalem to worship together. That means that in the millennium, we'll all be required to make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship the king. This means if you're going to Israel, it's a good thing. You'll you'll know your way around once you get there during the millennial kingdom. Come go with me. I'll show you the ropes. You'll uh, you'll be familiar with it once you get there. Hey, we're all going to Israel, either now or later. For some of us, both. In chapter 45, verses 1 through 25, 
Ezekiel lists the Passover sacrifices offered in the temple. Now, in the Old Testament temple of Solomon, the sacrifice was two bulls, one ram, and seven lambs. But in this future temple, the priest offers seven bulls, seven rams, and no lamb. Evidently, everyone will know that the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus, has already been slain for a thousand years. We'll be participating in a Passover feast while knowing that Jesus is our Passover Lamb. The first 15 verses of chapter 46 tell us that the east gate of the temple's inner court will be shut on weekdays. It's sort of a reverse Chick-fil-A philosophy. The gate will be open on the Sabbath, but it'll be closed the other six days. We're also told the prince will offer sacrifices each Sabbath. This is why some say that this can't be Jesus. The prince can't be Jesus. But if this prince is the Messiah, this could be a very tender, touching, even a teary-eyed scene to witness. Imagine the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus, perhaps still bearing in His glorified body the scars of crucifixion, to watch Him sacrifice and offer an actual lamb on the altar, everyone knowing that what He's doing is speaking and symbolizing what He's done for us. That could be very, a very touching moment, an incredible scene. As I mentioned last week, I believe the sacrifices offered in the Millennial Temple are all commemorative. It's possible that even what are said here to be atoning sacrifices merely represent the sacrifices that were atoning when they were first implemented. I believe the Millennial Temple will reveal what the former temples concealed. The Old Testament sacrifices all looked forward to Jesus' sacrifice. This temple and its sacrifices, I believe, we'll look backward on what Jesus has done for us. One other point to make about these verses, sacrifices are offered every Sabbath, every morning, and at the time of the new moon. It's interesting the priority placed on the new moon in this millennial age. You know, some scholars suggest that this implies that we'll return to a lunar calendar. It's believed that our year was once 360 days, or 12 30-day months. But a catastrophe, a cataclysm, a global flood, perhaps, slowed our orbit and lengthened the year. If so, perhaps another catastrophe will speed it up. The cataclysmic judgments that rock our planet in the Great Tribulation might be what makes the adjustment. Well, verses 16 to 18 are inheritance laws for the prince. And again, the need for these regulatory laws is a case for the prince in these chapters not being Jesus. For if Jesus is the prince, it seems to me he could do whatever he wants. In verses 19 to 24, we find support for church kitchens. Sherry, would you like a bigger kitchen? Hallelujah. Yeah. Well, here we find support for church kitchens right here. In verses 19 to 24, Ezekiel is shown the western side of the temple. He sees kitchens where the priests prepare the sacrifice. There's a kitchen in all four corners of the temple. How about that? Chapter 47 begins with a description of the millennial topography 
in and around Jerusalem. Verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and there was water flowing from under the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the front of the temple faced east. The water was flowing from under the right side of the temple, south of the altar. Now, whenever we walk into our church and we find water flowing out from under the door, it's not a good thing. It means that the ice maker has malfunctioned or there's a sewage line backed up or a toilet overflowed. I mean, it's bad. And it's happened. But not so when Ezekiel sees water here flowing out of the temple. Now realize, Jerusalem is a strange location for a city. For most cities are built along major waterways. Babel was built on the Euphrates. Cairo on the Nile River. Rome on the Tiber River. London on the Thames River. Atlanta on the Chattahoochee River. But Jerusalem has no river. Its chief water supply was a spring. The Gihon Spring fed the pool of Siloam. Again, if you go with us to Israel, you can walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and wade through the water from the Gihon Spring. Here Ezekiel sees water bubbling up from inside the temple. Water from the very presence of God. According to Joel chapter 3 verse 18 and Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8, I encourage you to read these verses. In the millennial kingdom, a trickle will begin to flow from the temple, the house of the Lord, and it will flow in two directions, east toward the Dead Sea and west toward the Mediterranean Sea. And the farther it flows, the deeper and wider it grows. Remember that song we used to sing? Deep and wide, deep and wide, there's a fountain flowing deep and wide. It's hard to imagine it today, but one day the city of Jerusalem is going to become a seaport. Notice what happens. He brought me out by way of the north gate and led me around on the outside to the outer gateway that faces east. And there was water running out on the right side. And when the man went out to the east with the line in his hand, that is his tour guide, He measured 1,000 cubits, and he brought me through the waters. The water came up to my ankles. 1,000 cubits equals 1,750 feet. About a third of a mile downstream, the water was ankle deep. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through the waters. The water came up to my knees. Now we're two-thirds of a mile downstream. We got water up to our knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and brought me through. The water came up to my waist. Now we're a mile from the temple, and the river's waist deep. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not cross, for the water was too deep, water in which one must swim, a river that could not be crossed. Now we're 4,000 cubits from the temple, and the water's over Ezekiel's head. He now has to swim. Verse 6 tells us, He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me and returned me to the bank of the river. Now obviously this speaks of a literal river. But there are some spiritual lessons here that we can draw. Have you ever noticed that the further you walk with God, the more you're with Him, 
the, the, just the years that go on as you walk with the Lord. Have you ever noticed that the more you abide in His presence, the deeper your faith grows, the deeper your experiences grow, the deeper your appreciation abounds. You know, you wade into the Christian life and you're just kind of splashing in ankle-deep mercy and just kind of that feeling of forgiveness. You're ankle-deep. But if you keep walking with the Lord, you get knee-high. You find a supernatural peace that comes with it, a peace that passes all understanding. Before long, you're waist-deep. You're splashing in joy and happiness. You're having a good time. Finally, you're in over your head. You're drowning in God's great love. Recall what Jesus said on the last day of the feast. John chapter 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Jesus said what happened in the temple, this river began to flow. It got deeper. It got wider. This is what happens when a person trusts in Jesus. Out of his heart flows rivers of living water. And the longer we walk with him, the further we go, the deeper we grow. The more substance we gain in our lives and in our relationship with God. And then verse 7 tells us, When I return, there along the bank of the river were very many trees on one side and on the other. The stream that flows from the throne of God becomes a river of miracles. There's a life-giving potential in these waters. Trees begin to grow along its banks. These waters cause the desert to bloom. They have the power to transform barrenness into fruitfulness. Jesus has that power in our lives as well. And then he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region. It goes down into the valley and enters the sea. When it reaches the sea, its waters are healed. The valley Ezekiel refers to here is the Arabah. It's the deepest valley. It's the deepest rift in the world. Its low point, the sea, is the Dead Sea, which is 1,312 feet below sea level. You go out the temple, you go east, it leads down into the valley, all the way to the Dead Sea. Tap water is 1% salt. Ocean water is right about 7% salt. The Great Salt Lake in Utah is 12% salt. But the Dead Sea is 33% salt. Five times saltier than the ocean. The heavy salt content makes the sea heavier than its swimmers, which makes them more buoyant. Here's some of our folks from the past who uh, floated on top of the Dead Sea. You can just float on top of the water without even moving your arms or moving your feet. The, the salt is so heavy in the water that it keeps you up. You stay afloat with no effort. It's really a lot of fun to swim in the Dead Sea. Yet when these healing waters from the temple begin to bubble up from the court of the Lord and make their way down the Arabah, finally pouring into the Dead Sea or the Salt Sea, what's going to happen? The acids are going to be neutralized. The poisonous waters are going to be made pure. God is going to turn the Dead Sea into a living ocean of life and fish and prosperity. And this is the effect 
the healing waters of the Holy Spirit have in our lives, is it not? The water of the Holy Spirit, the influence of God in our lives, neutralizes the poison of sin in us. God's presence transforms us. We become fruitful as we walk with God. And then verse 9 tells us, And it shall be that, ve- that every living thing that moves wherever the rivers go will live. There will be a very great multitude of fish, because these waters go there, for they will be healed. And everything will live wherever the river goes. You go to the Dead Sea today, and, and there's nothing alive inside the, in the waters. The salt content makes it impossible for anything to live. You don't have to worry about any fish nibbling on your toes. But the day's coming when you will. What a picture, too, of the work of the Holy Spirit. He brings life where there was death. Fish now swim where there was formerly scum. That's what's happened in my life. It shall be that fishermen will stand by it, by the Dead Sea. Fishermen will go down to the Dead Sea. Today they'd be crazy. From Engedi, we go there when we tour Israel, it's north, a northern spot on the Dead Sea, to Eglium, which is along the southern shore, or what used to be the southern shore. They will be places for spreading their nets. Incredible. Their fish will be of the same kinds as the fish of the great sea, exceedingly many, the great sea being the Mediterranean Sea. Today, the Dead Sea is so salty, as I said, nothing lives in these waters. But in the millennial kingdom, the Dead Sea will become a fisherman's paradise. The same genre of fish you find today in the Mediterranean, you're going to find in the Dead Sea one day. It's going to be incredible. Imagine fishing shows filmed at the Dead Sea. Well, verse 11 says, But its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be given over to salt. Along the bank of the river, on this side and that, will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month. How's that for fruitfulness? Because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. Wow. A salad for your sickness. Rather than head to the pharmacy, you'll just go for seconds to the salad bar. Verse 13. Thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions You shall inherit it equally with one another, for I raise my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. God promised the land to Abraham. Then he promised it again to Moses. Then he promised it to Joshua. Then he apportioned the land to the twelve tribes. But the twelve tribes of Israel never took possession of all that God had given them. But God's promises are still in force. He's going to make good on all that he's promised Israel. They're going to possess their land. And here we're given Israel's borders in the kingdom age. Today, even though the Arab world encompasses millions upon millions of square miles, in contrast to Israel's puny 8,000 square miles, Israel is still the one being asked to relinquish territory. Incredible. But in the millennium, her boundaries will expand to include all the occupied territories, 
Lebanon, southern Syria, including Damascus and the Sinai Peninsula. In the last days, the policy in, in the last several years, the policy in Israel has been land for peace. In the future, it will be land and land. God will see to it that they don't have to give up any land, but they will gain land and also live at peace. Now, chapter 48 begins. Now, these are the names of the tribes. Ezekiel's final chapter deals largely with the land allocated to each tribe. And again, rather than read it, let me just show you a map. Dan will be the northernmost tribe, Gad the southernmost. Each tribe gets one of 13 cross-sections running from the Mediterranean Sea to the eastern boundary. The holy rectangle encompasses Jerusalem. The future city will sit on more than 2.7, about two and three quarters square miles. Today, the old city of Jerusalem only occupies one square mile. There's also land allocated for the prince. And it's no accident that the sacred district is set up near the center of the country. And of course, the temple worship should be the center of the sacred district, for the worship of God should be the center of everything we do in our lives. We are first and foremost worshipers. The last six verses of Ezekiel 48 measure the millennial capital, the future city of Jerusalem. In the first century AD, Jerusalem's circumference was about four miles. Today, the old city of Jerusalem, its circumference is two and a half miles. The Jerusalem of the kingdom age we read about here measures six miles in circumference. And it'll have 12 gates, three on each side, we're told. Each gate will be named after one of the 12 tribes. Verse 35 closes the book of Ezekiel. All the way around shall be 18,000 cubits, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. The word Jerusalem means city of peace. But sadly, that's a description that has never been indicative. In fact, an ocean of blood has been spilt over Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will be given a fitting name when the Lord returns and makes His throne in Ezekiel's temple. The city will be called Jehovah Shammah, which means the Lord is there. It's only when Jesus returns to rule that peace in Jerusalem will be a reality. And what a cool place name. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. Don't you want to live where the Lord is? The Lord is there will be the name of the holy city. 